morning, everyone. Let's all um, open in our Bibles to Mark 8. This morning, we are going to be going through a substantial portion of uh, the Scriptures. We're going to be going through Mark 1 through 30. So uh, I think many of you have heard me tell this story before. Um, But when uh, Brent and I were first starting the youth group, we had on uh, Christmas Eve, uh, we had a Christmas Eve service. And one of the things that Brent decided to do for that service is he decided to have a sermon on why Jesus came, which was to die. So it was a very sad and depressing Christmas Eve service. But one of the things that we did during that sermon is we walked through the entire crucifixion narrative. And that's a pretty long section. One of the things that I found out when we were going through that is how impactful it is when we read large sections of Scripture. It really helps to focus our mind because if you just have one verse and we read it and then we're done reading it, then you could have missed a few of those verses but it, or a few of those words and then you don't really understand what we're getting at. But when we read large sections of scriptures, when you would read entire books in one setting or something like that, then the context starts to shape your heart and it starts to shape your mind and what you're focusing on. So you stop asking questions that God isn't asking in the scriptures you start asking the questions that the context demands that you ask. So my hope is that as we walk through this, we're going to read 30 verses, and I'm going to be making some comments as we go along to kind of direct our focus, but um, settle in for a little bit, because right now I have about half of my sermon is just reading. Uh, so uh, be patient and be eager to see what God's going to do as we walk through these verses. So uh, let's... Begin with prayer, because we're not going to pray afterwards. Dear Lord, we just want to lift our hearts up to you. Um, We are eager for you to work in us. We are eager to praise you. And we uh, desire that you would speak to us. So please get me out of the way, get the preacher out of the way, and have your word come forward. We know that you can do this. Um, If I, in my own strength, decided to come up here and uh, just deliver the word, that would not be enough. It's not enough. You have to do it, Lord. So we, as a congregation, come to you and ask, please come down, visit with us, and teach us your word so that we can be different for it, and trust you more for it by the end. We love you, Lord, and we submit ourselves to you this morning because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. So Mark 8, 1 through 30. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he calls his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days, and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with the bread here in this desolate place? 
And he answered them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they have and they had a few fish. Having blessed them, he said that these should also be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them all away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. So here we have one of the first things that's going to be a recurring theme. Earlier, about uh, three, four weeks ago, we just had another sermon on the feeding. It was the feeding of the 5,000. So obviously, this is a recurring theme. So let's just make a note of that. This has already happened. There's nothing new here. And let's continue on reading to see more recurring themes happening throughout the passage. The Pharisees came, beginning with verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them, In the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus was aware of this. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear. And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many basketful of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? So here, the first, we see the Pharisees. And they are still hardened in their unbelief. Six times, uh, Jesus has been in disagreements and arguments um, and testings with the Pharisees. And they still don't believe. They've heard his teaching. And their hearts are still hardened. His teaching and his miracles aren't able to change their hearts. It's still hardened. And likewise, the the disciples are following suit. Um, The disciples react to the teaching about the Pharisees and Herod in the exact same way that they have in the past. They have an absolute inability to hear what Jesus is truly getting at and what he's really saying. They just don't have ears for it. They don't have ears for his teaching. It's like Jesus is a physics professor and... uh, that physics professor is trying to explain complex equations to their dog. That dog is not going to get it, no matter how many times. One, two, three, four, five times. They're still not going to understand the, the equation. 
And not only do the disciples not understand what Jesus is teaching them, but they are subjecting themselves to concerns about what they're going to have for bread, what they're going to do to eat, right after they had this miracle where plethora of food has been given to them. They actually could be finishing up the seven baskets full from the last miracle right now. And they get to the end and they say, man, I don't know what I'm going to do for food tonight. Seems like I'm on my own. Now these disciples are truly following Christ. But they clearly have a wobbly faith after uh, watching these healings and the walking on water in the two instances of the feeding of the, five thousand, or the thousands of people, and even with his authoritative teaching, they're still struggling. They still don't get it. So let's continue with our text in verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village, and when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he, said, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees, walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him home, saying, Do not even enter the village. So, though there are some unique aspects about this story, you know, this miracle is a little different from the rest of them that we've had through the reading of Mark. There's nothing entirely new here. Um, This is another healing from the Lord Jesus with a charge for the recipient of that healing to not go and tell anyone. He actually says, don't even, he takes him out of the village. And he says, don't go back in the village. I don't want anyone to know what I've done for you. The only thing that does stand out here as a little different is that this is the first and only time in the story that Jesus heals partially. The man first, he says, after he has this healing given to him, he says, I see everyone, but they look like trees. And then Jesus completes the miracle and causes him to see very clearly. Many people take this passage, not many, but quite a few notable people, take this passage to be some uh, strange spirit realm that the man is now seeing, where everyone is a tree, and they're represented as a tree. Uh, I tend not to think this, because it says clearly that Jesus touched him again and caused him to see everything clearly. So before, he wasn't seeing everything clearly when there were the trees, Uh, if he was, if it was everyone's really a tree spirit, then he would be really truly seeing everything clearly at that point. But no, he says that's not the clear thing. The clear thing is after when everyone, everyone looks like a normal person. So don't worry. You're all normal people. You're not trees. Um, another perspective is that there is some sort of typological miracle here. There is a man that was healed, and he represents the disciples. Just as this man is partially healed, then fully healed, the disciples have a partial faith in Jesus. 
but it still isn't complete until after the resurrection. Now it's true that this section is really about the faith of the disciples. This, so far the section has been talking about the disciples and their faith, not believing the miracle, not believing the feeding of the 4,000. But there just isn't enough evidence here to take that reading because it's a little bit, um, it's not the normal reading. So we need to have a lot of strong evidence for that. Any typological reading needs a substantial amount of textual evidence for it. The Bible does say that types and shadows are used in the Bible to speak about Christ. So there is such a thing as a typological reading. But we have to have a really high bar for those sorts of things. As a side note, beware of people who use this reading, who use typological readings all throughout the scriptures to make whatever point they want. I do see a lot of Bible teachers and a lot of social media um, teachers, personalities, um, using typological arguments to prove Roman Catholicism and critical theory and a notable one who uses it to uh, affirm women preaching. It's exciting to see a deeper meaning in the text. Our heart always wants to see this. So we do want to see a, a deep meaning in the text. But these people, they prey on the excitement by using weak typological arguments to lead people away from the sure faith. Be wary of people who teach this way. Now, we shouldn't, on the other hand, just absolutely reject anyone who says this is a type of Christ or this is a typological reading. So we shouldn't reject that out of hand, but we should have an extremely high bar for those sorts of things. So, since there's no extra clear meaning in the text, we should simply take this miracle as another attestation to the goodness of God um, and the kindness of Jesus and his love and his compassion. And another instance of him bending over backwards to make sure that the town doesn't figure out who he is as the Messiah. And then, likewise, see the contrast where he is bending over backwards to make sure that his disciples do understand that he is the Messiah. And still, they don't understand. So let's finish up, actually, the reading, in, beginning in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Here we have a very reassuring declaration from Peter. In the midst of his lack of understanding. He still gets this. He understands this. Though he does have a weak faith, as shown from not understanding pretty much everything Jesus is saying, he still believes this. He says, no, you're not the prophet. You're not the baptizer. You're not John the Baptist back from the dead. You're not any of those guys. You're the real deal. He knows you're Jesus Christ. You're the Savior that we've been waiting for. Later on in this passage, 
Peter will be rebuked by Jesus for having his mind set on the things of man rather than the things of God, by rejecting Jesus' teaching about the cross. So he clearly doesn't have a perfect faith. He has an extremely weak faith here. But it's a real faith, nonetheless. Brothers and sisters, our faith is weak sometimes. But that doesn't mean that it's not real. We may believe in our hearts and confess Jesus, but struggle to understand and employ Christ's teachings. There's a lot of stuff here in this Bible that doesn't go down easy, even though it is good. But what that gets from Jesus is rebuke, not a denial that you have a real faith. If you struggle in the faith, if you struggle to obey him, it's not because it's not there. It's not because it's not a real faith. Jesus would tell you, get it fixed. Improve it. Grow your faith. But he doesn't say that's not a real faith. He doesn't scoff at that faith. Sometimes the weak even affirm to struggle the teachings of the Bible. And it's obvious that that faith is lacking if someone can read the Bible and say, this is really hard for me. I'm not sure that I can understand it or believe it. Even if I do understand it, it's hard for me to believe. But even something dramatic like that isn't grounds for looking down on them because they struggle with something that comes very easy to us. I know in this church, many of us, we just, Bible says it, that says it, I agree. And that's good and wonderful and it's a gift from God. But there are pe- people who struggle with that. It doesn't mean that they're not real Christians. It doesn't mean that God hasn't given them faith. It doesn't mean that their faith is not real. Now, we shouldn't relish how small our faith is. This really bothers me. I, I, there's a lot of podcasts, some of them that are very notable, that relish this sort of mystic sort of doubt about the veracity of the claims of Jesus. And it's a philosophical person who's going to come up there and try to teach people that it's, it's really cool to have a partial belief, but not really be able to hold on to it very well. So we don't relish that. That's pretty absurd. But we can all relish the fact that God doesn't have a tape measure up in heaven to quantify how big our faith is or how substantial it is. He's not up there doing that. He accepts our faith if it's true, not if it's grand. Now let's get some clarity on this from the parallel passage in Matthew 16, 17. And one thing I want to mention as we turn there is that, yeah, most of this is going to be about a weak faith. A lot of this passage is going to be about uh, weak and unsubstantial faith. And while it's good just to be reminded for other people, it is a very common thing that we're going to immediately say, well, I have a strong faith. I, I acknowledge that when I came to this passage, I said, this, this doesn't apply to me because my faith's really strong. And because I think my faith is strong, therefore, I should be especially careful here. I should be especially eager to say, maybe it's not that strong, because I'm confident in it. So this week, I have been humbled. Maybe my faith is not as strong as I thought it was. We don't know what would happen 
if we were up against things like the Rottweiler family has been up against. We assume we're strong. We're going to be the ones leading the cause. We're going to be the, the disciples um, in Afghanistan who kneel, ready for their lives to be taken from them. We assume that we will be them. Don't assume that. The entire early church thought that they did, but there are many who failed, who did not acknowledge that Jesus Christ was Lord when it came down to it. So I'm not trying to scare you, but check your heart. Say, is God speaking to me here? Do I have a weaker faith than I think I do? So with that said, let's continue on and get some clarity in Matthew 16, 17. And this brings everything together. Here, Jesus answers Peter's confession by saying, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So, Peter just confessed that Jesus is the Christ. And then Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But who did reveal this to you? It was revealed by my Father who is in heaven. So here is an important question. Why is weak faith real faith? Why is weak faith real faith? The answer is in the text. Because faith isn't from you. It's a gift. Your faith isn't something your faith is something that the Lord God gave to you. It's his gift to you. The verse here says it's revealed by the Father in heaven, not by flesh and blood. And flesh and blood is used to refer to man. It wasn't given by man. Faith is something that Christ, and faith in Christ is something that we could get by ourselves without God, then yeah, it would make sense for us in an, an emotional low point to despair of our little faith and call it useless, wouldn't it? But it's not from you. It's from God. Therefore, it's real. If it's weak and imperfect, if it's mixed with mud, if you're looking at your faith and you're tempted to despair because it's just your own little faith, remember this. It's not your own little faith. God was the one who wrought it in you. If it's tax season and you're planning on getting a tax return. And you receive a letter, and the name and address is scribbled in crayon. And then you have an Elvis stamp on the corner. And it says, this is from Billy Smith, or some other random name. You know that that check, and it says, here is your tax return. I'm giving this to you as Billy Smith. Here's your tax return you know that that check is going to bounce. You know that it's not real. But if you get a letter that says, from the Internal Revenue Service of the United States of America, with governmental logos on it and an IRS-stamped check inside, you don't doubt whether it's real or not, do you? In the same way, we should doubt our faith if we receive it from some guy. I love all of you here. I love... My parents, who raised me in the faith. 
But if it's from them, it's not real. I, there's no reason for me to trust it if it's just from him. There's no reason for you guys to trust your faith and be depend, have dependence on it if it's from me. That's not enough. That won't get you through. But how much more should we trust our faith if God says, it's for me? We can know that it's real because he says, it's for me. If we trust the IRS check when it comes in the mail, how much more should we trust God who gave us our faith? Now I have three points to make about the nature of this gift. The first is that it's undeserved. How far has our righteousness taken us? Have you ever one day in your life impressed yourself with your goodness? We often think of ourselves as good, maybe, but have you ever impressed yourself, really? Do you ever think you really look like Jesus today? He's so righteous. He's flawless from top to bottom. Everything about him is perfect. We read in the scriptures, and don't we long to see what it would be like to be lived out in real life? That's all we want. We want to see Jesus because he's different from us. And here's, this, here's the sad part. He's the standard. It's, it's actually okay to say he's the bare minimum. So we fall short. We have, offer very little to Jesus. We have very little righteousness to give him. Therefore, when God gives you faith, it's something that you don't deserve. And that, the harp thing is that that means you can't demand it. How absurd is it for us to assume that we, in our own hearts, our own righteousness, there's something in it of us, I can say to God, I can just choose to follow you by myself without your help. Or even worse, to demand God, you must give me faith. We aren't owed it. No one is owed it. It can't be demanded by us. And it's, that means that it's something that God freely chooses to give. No one has the authority or the right or the power, certainly not, to twist God's arm into giving them faith. That means that God is the authority over faith. If some atheist comes to you and objects to God, this is a very common thing, he objects to God by saying, if God really exists, then he has to show himself to me. He should make me believe. I'm sure we, most of us have had conversations with atheists like this. He's got to make me believe. It's fitting for us to turn to him and say, God doesn't owe you anything. God is 100% free to choose the recipients of his gifts. That atheist has no right to demand anything from God. So then, because it's freely given to those who are not owed it, this is the wonderful part. Therefore, you don't have to look at your faith to validate it. You don't have to examine your wretched self. God gives it to you apart from anything that you've done. We often want to grow in our faith. 
And so we say, man, I really need to be holy so that I can grow in the faith. And it's true that we do want to be holy and we do want to grow in the faith. But that's not how it works. That's not how you get more faith. Our works test our faith, but, our, but they are not the source of our faith. Our works test our faith, but they're not the source of our faith. That source is God. And we receive that gift with open hands and no works with which to purchase it. So rejoice, you of little faith. If you aren't good enough to earn that gift, you aren't good enough to earn it, and God gives it freely. It is undeserved. The second point is that this gift is imperishable. Not only is it undeserved, but it's imperishable. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Or irrevocable, that works too. God's character, <laughs> God's character is such that he gives faith. And no man can tear it from him. No one can tear it from you. I don't care how many new atheist arguments are out there. I don't care. They won't take God's faith away. He'll preserve it in me and in you. Now, our faith can be weakened by our own sin. It can. And it can be weakened by our imperfect thinking. But they cannot snuff out our faith. It says in Isaiah 42.3, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. The power of God is shown in us precisely because, <clears throat> because we as Christians are often tossed to and fro in life. Yet God strengthens us and keeps us from abandoning the faith. I know many people who have struggled in the faith due to intellectual issues and personal tragedies. But I will tell you that the people who still stand in the faith today, they're the ones who knew that their faith wasn't theirs. It wasn't their doing. If they were going to mess it up, they would. They knew that, and they knew that it was something from God. It was an irrevocable work of God. Sure, they struggled, but they saw their faith as something that God had to ultimately grow, rather than something that they had to fix themselves. The tragedy was greater than they were. They knew that they had to bring it to God, and God had to bring them through it, and he did. The intellectual issues are above our prey grade. Only God can keep us as we wrestle through them. It's necessary to point out that it's not you who keeps your faith. It's your faith that keeps you. So many people go through their life as if they're the ones who have to make sure that they don't break their faith. They have to that make sure that they don't bruise, uh, that they don't break the bruised reed, and they don't snuff out the uh, burnly, uh, the wick that's growing dim. They say, "I have to keep all my doubts away from my faith. I have to guard it, or else I'm going to break my faith." 
But who was the one who was responsible for the condition? In the Bible, it says in Isaiah 42.3, Jesus is the one who's responsible. He's the one who doesn't break the bruised reed. And actually, you're the bruised reed. It's not your faith that's the bruised reed. You're the bruised reed. And you're the faintly burning wick. It's the faith that God gives you that preserves you. Not you who preserves your faith. So don't worry about your faith. Don't be anxious about it. Instead, live by it. It's impossible to live by your faith if you're worried about it. But instead, live by your faith, as it says in Habakkuk. Live by it. Let your faith that God gave you out of its cage. And let it rule your life. Let it rule all of it. Be confident in it. The third point is that this gift, that since this is a gift, we have nothing to boast in. When we truly grapple with the fact that our faith is a gift, we should realize that Jesus, that that necessarily means that we didn't get it by our own desire or effort. Everyone knows that we aren't getting to heaven by our own good deeds, but we reserve a little bit of pride for ourselves when we think that our faith was our own doing. But it wasn't our doing. We would have been the crucifiers of Christ. We would have been the scoffers. And we would not believe. We are really delusional if we think that we have something in and of ourselves that would keep us from denying him. No, we're sons of wrath by nature. And we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And we're unbelievers. But here's the unique thing. Many of us here have never thought a doubting thought about Christ since we were first born. Not since we were first born, excuse me. Since we were first saved. Many of us here have never thought a doubting thought about Jesus since we were saved. So how is that? We're really blessed if that's you. But you can't boast in that, though. Because you were, by nature, a son of wrath. You can't boast in it, because you couldn't help it. You couldn't help but believe in Christ. God, he just chose to do it in you, and he did it in you. He didn't ask for your approval, did he? Before he gave you faith? Sure, you approved afterwards. After you already believed, you're like, yeah, I believe. But he didn't ask for your approval to give you faith. He gave it to you as a gift. And you did nothing to help it along. So you, with the strong faith, humble yourself. The difference between those out there who are cussing out Christ and storing up wrath for themselves and you, the difference between them and you isn't you. And even in this church, the difference between you as the strong person in Christ and the weak person who struggles to affirm the truths or to really have a strong faith. The difference between you and them isn't you. The difference is God and the measure of his gift that he's given you. He gave it to you, so you can't boast in it. Instead of boasting, a better response would be to say, why me? Why me? 
So humble yourself before God, before your church, before your family, your neighbors that you don't like, even those, and your enemies. Humble yourself before all of them. Your faith was a gift. What sets you apart from them was a gift. And you have nothing to brag about. One thing I want to clarify is that when, is that when the word speaks of faith, it's not speaking of faith in general. It's not speaking of that kind of faith, because that faith is useless. Why are all these powerful provisions true about our faith and not about a Muslim or a Buddhist or an atheist in their faith? The difference is because the object of our faith is Jesus. He's entirely distinct. He's nothing like those other faiths. No one is like him. Those other theories didn't rise from the dead. And those men weren't the long-prophesied savior of the world. Our faith is not a general faith. It's a specific faith whose object is Christ. That leads me to one more point that I would like to make. And it's not about the nature. My other points have been about the nature of this gift. But this is going to be about the effect. The effect of the gift. This faith isn't just like undeserving, we don't deserve it, and it humbles us, and it's imperishable. But it actually does something. This faith gives you Christ. It's the means by which you can receive him. Without faith, you wouldn't have God. It says in Ephesians 3.17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that he may dwell in your hearts through faith. When you first believed, Christ made his tabernacle and his dwelling place in your heart. People tend to either focus on the teaching that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father where he makes intercession for us, and that's a powerful thing. They focus on that, or they focus on his, the teaching presented here, that he's in your heart and he dwells with you, and you're not alone. But the glory of either of these truths come from their dependence on one another. They come from their dependence on one another. It's glorious because the very same Jesus who did ascend and also reigns in heaven, he also reigns in your heart. And he dwells there, and he set up camp forever. How does this glorious thing happen? Only by faith, only through faith. By entering into a covenant with Christ through faith, God Almighty is made imminent to you. It unifies you to the God of the universe. The one right now, to whom the angels are crying, holy, 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 covering their faces, covering their bodies because of the surpassing glory of Jesus. The one to whom they are saying those things, they are saying, holy, 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 he is in your heart by faith. And his eternal home is in your heart. He's not going anywhere. He stopped being a nomad when he was ascended. So he's in you and in you forever. And there's one more aspect of faith I want to touch on. This is one, this 
one is one that we must not grow weary in. This subject, sometimes I can almost see people roll their eyes. Not, not really roll their eyes, but when I start talking about it, I've heard this a thousand times. Don't grow weary in this. This is the bedrock of our faith. Get ready to hear this a thousand times more. What this faith does is it gives you Christ's righteousness. It says that Abraham believed. He believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. That faith that you were given, it makes you righteous in the eyes of God. That faith is the forgiveness of your sins. And one thing that we need to make sure we realize is it's the complete forgiveness of your sins. Every single one of your sins are gone. By this gift of faith, there's no partial forgiveness of your sins. That is utter garbage. People teach it all the time. Satan lies to us and tells us that a lot of your faith, a lot of your sins have been forgiven. But that's garbage. They, all of them have been forgiven. Every single one of them, past, present, future, the best and the worst, all of them. The most dramatic sins, the ones that really ruined your life, those are all forgiven because of faith. So, boldly approach the throne. Don't cower before God. If you sin, confess it to God and to anyone else involved, but then don't look back at all. You're going to be tempted to look back to the sins that you have committed. Don't look back. They're gone. Boldly come before God as a righteous and forgiven son and daughter of God. And boldly live, because of that, boldly live like a forgiven man or woman in the real world too. Too many of us have sins in the back of our heads that we're ashamed of. And we're distracted by our everyday life, but there's always in the back of our heads, they're always in the back of our heads saying, this one is really bad. Maybe God has forgiven you of all those sins, but he can't use you anymore. He can't use you for the kingdom. You might have a somewhat spiritual relationship with God and he's forgiven you, but what good are you going to be now because of your sins? They're too much. But that didn't disqualify David or Paul or Peter either. That didn't disqualify them. It doesn't disqualify the great or the small in the Christian faith. So how much less would it disqualify us if we just serve in smaller ways in the faith, if we have much more humble ways that we serve one another? They're very important. But if we're loving our families and that's building the kingdom of God, how much less would our sins disqualify us for that stuff? Of course God can use you. Of course he can. The faith God gave you is enough to make you effective for his kingdom work here. And lastly, I want to close by making some uncategorized applications for everyday life. The first is that since faith is a gift, don't evangelize in fear. Don't witness to anyone in fear, whether that be someone on the street, your coworker, or your son, your daughter, someone that you're really concerned about, your parents, 
that might be dying soon and you're concerned for their faith. Don't evangelize in fear. You can rest in the fact that God's inscrutable will will, will prevail. If your friends or your family don't believe the gospel, then earnestly present it to them. Earnestly and passionately beg them to, get, to accept the gospel. But then, after you're done with that, leave it to God. God's got this. Hopefully that's come clear with this. God's got this. Don't try to convince an unbeliever that they can trust in God with their salvation and then go off and not trust God with their salvation yourself. It's pretty silly. We can trust him. Our evangelism will be benefited if it's showered in trust that God will save his people. And he will give the faith as he wills. So don't evangelize and worry. You can evangelize with a burden, but not with fear. Second, we need to live in harmony with one another. Ephesians 4. Let's all turn to Ephesians 4 real fast. Ephesians 4, beginning with verse 1, says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the hope, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. It's messy when husbands and wives disagree about real, real issues. And it's messy when church members disagree about real issues. But often... Oftentimes, those aren't real issues. A lot of the times, those are preferences. Well, they, they don't invite me over the way that I want them to. Or they just have a certain personality. Maybe they're a little bit too critical. Those are preferences. Those are differences between you and them according to the grace that God has given you. Those aren't problems. Those are differences. So treat them as such. What that, uh, that other person that irks you is not your enemy, and they have the same faith. So lay down your preferences for them. Just assume this. Their preferences are more important than mine. Just put them ahead of you, 100%. Lay down your preferences for them for the sake of the unity of the faith. Think of them as higher than you. They are worth sacrificing your preferences for. Third, we need to praise God. And we need to praise him with all of our hearts. Because he's placed this glorious faith 
in broken vessels like you and me. And because the Bible says that he's going to continue to place broken uh, faith in broken vessels until the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So let's all rejoice in that.